Hi, this is Archie Phillips and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Khan Ross, former diplomat and founder and executive director of The Independent Diplomat, the world's first non-profit diplomatic advisory group. Mr. Ross, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Please call me Khan. Will do. Firstly, a little bit about your background and early career. Would you tell us what first got you interested into foreign policy in general and diplomatic career in, sp- in particular? Um, well, what got me interested was international relations seemed to me to be much more interesting than the kind of conventional options that were before me at school. Um, you know, I found existence in South London as a boy fairly boring, to be honest, and the rest of the world was very interesting. And um, you, you now run and you founded the Independent Diplomat, uh, which is not your usual type of diplomacy, to, to say the least. So what, what exactly does it do and, and what makes um, the Independent Diplomat unique? Yeah, there's no definite article. It's Independent Diplomat. Independent. It doesn't matter, though. Um, what's, well, we advise democratic countries and political movements on diplomacy on diplomatic processes that are about them. So uh, our first client was the government of Kosovo when it was uh, about to go through the so-called final status process to determine its final status. Mm-hmm. Um, after the 99 war, Kosovo was expressly prohibited from having any diplomatic representation, yet was subject to a diplomatic process, a very secretive um, diplomatic process, and was expected to ac- accept that process. This seemed to me to be both unfair and stupid, and so I ended up advising the Kosovo government on how to deal with that process, what was going on behind closed doors in the diplomatic chambers, and how to engage with it so that Kosovo could get what it wanted. Um, So that's the kind of classic example of it. Um, There aren't really any other NGOs, non-profits doing this. In fact, there's not really a dedicated company out there that just does diplomatic advice. You'll find law firms and lobbying companies, of course, that do some of the things that we do, but nothing that just does explicitly diplomacy. And the status of Kosovo today is independent. independent. Yeah. It's recognised, I think, by about 105 countries. It's not recognised by all 193 members of the UN it will be, and mm. what, what needs to change is that Serbia needs to recognise Kosovo. And when it does, everybody else will recognise Kosovo. Mm. So on, on this um, note of states which don't have um, you know, partially recognised states or unrecognised states in some cases, uh, this is um, obviously in, in the news with uh, Catalonia and um, other examples, Somalia land. So going to the big question... Uh, how would you define a state? What makes um, what is statehood for you? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it's it, you know, I don't want to play semantics with you. I'm an anarchist, so I don't really believe in the state for a start. Um, and you know, I believe the mm. state of the self. I believe in self determination of the self above all. Um, uh, but that's a different matter. Um, what determines a state is. Uh, the typical things, control of territory, your own commitment to that state. I'm less attached to these very legalistic um, determinations of what is a state. You know, there are various Mm. conventions and laws. Academics have written great thick books about it. 
uh, I think what matters is what you call yourself and what other people call you mm. um, and what matters for states like Somaliland and or would-be states like Somaliland or Catalonia is whether other states would recognize them as such. That is the critical thing. Is the Islamic State a state with that definition? or It has poetry it calls is, itself Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, but of course, nobody recognized it as a state. Um, and this is the frustration for Catalonia, for instance, is that nobody... Um, has said it would recognise, you know, before it became independence, a lot of countries, including, and the UN Secretary General said it should not be independent. Um, states as a whole are very reluctant to recognise new states. They are very much against the breakup of ex- ex- existing states. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. <laughs> so, um, on, on on this note, the what is generally perhaps. Um, less so now, but generally regarded as the um, sort of uh, representative of states and the family of nations is the United Nations. And um, you have been quite critical of the way the United Nations works. Uh, would you mind saying what are your main sort of bugbears with this super supranational organization? Um, well, there are many. Um, the first is political, is its domination by the permanent five members mm-hmm. of the UN Security Council a domination that permeates almost all aspects of the UN, including who's appointed as the Secretary General, um, senior appointments across the organisation, the way the UN Security Council deals with the world. It's supposed to be a neutral body dealing with peace and security. It is, of course, not neutral. Um, and it's very much, it's, it's important mm. to see it as a function of the P5. Um, mm. The non-permanent members really don't count for anything, to mm. be honest. Um, the P5 decide everything that matters. That's one big problem. The other big problem that we work directly on is exclusion. It's a body of states, as, as you mm. said. Um, uh, most conflict today, for instance, is not between states, it's inside states. So the, the parties to those conflicts, be they legitimate or illegitimate, have no access to a multilateral body of states like the United Nations. And so the United Nations talks to itself. It's states talking to other states they neglect non-state actors as mm. they're somewhat kind of reductively known, um, and it's very foolish and it's very unfair. Um, the world's much more complicated than that, and bodies like the UN Security Council, but also other UN bodies, um, should pay a lot more attention to the people on the ground and their representatives, even when they're not formally states. You mentioned non-state actors and their crucial role. Um, In an interview with the LA Review of Books, you have said, and I quote, it is absurd that non-state actors are not allowed to speak formally at the UN, even though by and large they're the dominant groups in conflict today, as you've just said. Um, Would you say, um, so how do you know you've worked with the Syrian Syrian opposition forces? Mm -hmm. We'll get to that a bit later, but how would you arbitrate or um, decide who are you know the right people to work with in in independent diplomat? Are there what are them? Are there any sort of moral criteria or legal criteria that you um, that you insist on when taking on these clients? Sure. Um, yes, there are. We have our so-called ethical criteria. Our clients have to be committed to democracy, mm-hmm. the protection of human rights, and mm-hmm. respect for international law. So three specific criteria. Mm-hmm. We have a, a very elaborate system of. Uh, researching and testing out those criteria 
if our clients breach those criteria, we stop. They stop being our clients. We mm. have contracts with all of our clients mm-hmm. that explicitly say that. So the point is to generally help the good guys if we can. And yeah. Of course, it's never black and white. Um, careful judgments have to be made. Um, mm. uh, but the point, you know, I set up independent diplomat in general to help the good guys. Of course, we can't help terrorist groups, so there are legal constraints on us as well. Uh, we would be prosecuted if we did. Um, and on a more general point, we've spoken um, specifically about um, non-state actors and partially recognised states. Um, you also continue in this in this interview. Um, you say, but in general, the Westphalian state-based system is in slow terminal decline. Um, would you mind elaborating on this? And so, do you see a new shift in in the world order in the balance of power, firstly, and secondly, do you think the very, perhaps, the notion of statehood or the criteria for statehood are under threat of that key issue of sovereignty? As we well, see under, under threat implies you think it's a good thing that statehood exists. <laughs> I don't. Um, so, so I don't premise my thinking on that the, the current status quo is any good. I don't think it is. I don't think it works effectively. Most of the problems that bother us, uh, whether it's climate change mm-hmm. or indeed economic uh, injustice, tend to be distributed across states, tend to be uh, global, transnational problems, mm-hmm. um, and states are actually fantastically bad at dealing with them. Because uh, of their change. own problems. Well, they're, they're inward, inwardly interests. focused. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the best that the world can do on climate is the lowest common deno- denominator that all 193 of them can agree, and that's obviously not enough. Uh, to deal with the the problem. So we have these global problems, but we have state-based attempts to solve it. But that's not why it's coming to an end. I think it's coming to an end because populations are changing. Mm. Borders are becoming more porous. We are becoming many, not singular, in these states. I actually think humanity is is moving towards a condition of borderlessness. I know this won't happen in my lifetime, Mm. um, but I think this... the, the Westphalian order, if you call it, want to call it that. I'm not sure I would because it's never been an order. Um, and orders are never static. Uh, it's in a constant dynamic change. Um, and the nature of the state and the nature of borders and what separates countries is in constant change. So there isn't this fixed order. That, but yeah. nevertheless, to answer your question, this will disappear. This will not last. I can't tell you how long it will it will take to mm. morph into something else, but that process is already underway. We've seen the increasing rise of identity politics, one way, obviously, of identifying yourself is with the nation or the nation-state. Um, other than many other ways, you know, religion, um, etc. So how do you see people who could be argued by nature are sort of animals who want to find an identity, something to hold on to, how would you say, and with this disintegration, eventual disintegration of the state order, how will people group themselves and how will this international cooperation, um, how will people, sorry, how will people um, group themselves together, identify themselves and work together? Well, I mean, I think hammering them into the pigeonhole of states is Mm. not a particularly good starting Mm -hmm. point. you know, I feel identity with people who support democracy and human mm-hmm. rights all over the world. I was just with the Syrian opposition 
just before I came to Oxford and you know I felt great solidarity with them I feel a lot more mm. solidarity with them than I do with certain British people mm. um, so you know I think the notion of these singular distinct identities is, is really completely wrong it's not the right way to think of it I think we all have uh, a mixture of identities you know where they are sharply drawn for instance in the Middle East um, I think you often you often get conflict but that's often not even necessarily about identity it's sometimes about other things that are ignored socioeconomic factors mm -hmm. uh, deprivation lack of agency mm -hmm. depression mm -hmm. uh, things like that and these conflicts are depicted in ethnic or religious terms as if these are the defining identities and the defining features of the conflict when well, I'm, mm. I'm not at all sure that they are I think all conflict and indeed all interaction and not all human relationships are much 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 more complicated yeah. than that and I think that you know we are much more complicated than that I, I don't have a singular identity I doubt you do and it's more and more the case that people see themselves as multi multinational they see their commitments to sets of values rather mm -hmm. than to the state. Uh, and a good example of that is in institutions like the Foreign Office, where I think until you know a generation ago, mm -hmm. patriotism would be the way that people would define their mm -hmm. commitment to that work. They would say, I do this for Britain, Queen and country. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember reading the uh, letters of a, a, a diplomat, a former very senior diplomat who... And his letters were full of doing this for Britain. Mm. Um, and no, very few modern, you know, diplomats, very few people in the Foreign Office today would say that that was their motivation. Mm. They, would say, they would say, you know, perhaps they're doing it for career terms selfishly, but they would also say, I'm doing it because I want to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. I support democracy. Mm -hmm. I support the sorts of values I think Britain or I hope Britain stands for. Mm. Um. Obviously, some states or some groups of people in a more general sense are more successful than others. And in your work, the one I'm particularly interested in is your work in gaining um, South Sudan independence. Mm -hmm. uh, what, were there any, what was your experience with that? Um, and what did you find particularly interesting, emotional, etc.? Uh, and taking lessons from, from that experience there and your other work in Somaliland, um, Kosovo, Western Sahara, what makes states, um, in this general term, um, or groups succeed or fail? Well, that's very simple. Um, getting other countries to recognize you, mm. that's the crucial thing. Forget what lawyers tell you, mm. forget what the Montevideo Convention says, mm. what matters in becoming a state, becoming an equal in the family of states, mm. family is the right word, is other countries recognizing you and accepting that status. Um, and that is a very rare thing, uh, the two countries that have achieved that over the last 20 years are Kosovo and South Sudan. Kosovo, to a lesser extent, is not as recognized fully yet by some countries. Um, and in both cases, uh, it, there was a collective decision in the international community, quote-unquote, mm. driven by the Americans above all to recognize those states, that they should be separate from their original states for political reasons, not for fundamental reasons of uh, respect for self-determination mm. or the rights of people to decide their own mm -hmm. statehood, mm -hmm. unfortunately, but for very much more pragmatic, uh, polit short-term political reasons mostly about uh, trying to avoid future war. 
uh, there's no question that the recognition of South Sudan was about the, the need to avoid resumption mm. of the civil war. The uh, uh, comprehensive peace agreement between North and South was premised on the South having a referendum of self-determination. And the South, the SPLA, uh, made very, very clear that if they didn't get that referendum, there would be a resumption of war. And that was why, uh, you know, they forced, they forced the international community's hand, in a sense. Um, their claim for self-determination is, is in many ways no more legitimate than other people's. Mm. Uh, in Western Sahara, um, the, UN, the UN Security Council has accepted that the people of the Western Sahara have a right to self-determination. They're, the, I think, the only legal case of that kind where mm. that's been formally accepted, that there should be a process of self-determination, but that is prevented by the, the illegal occupation by Morocco. Mm. Um, but personally, I think groups of people should be free to determine their own status of whatever kind. Um, and we ought to be thinking about normative criteria for how that should be done, because this will not go away by pretending that, you know, Catalonia should never become a state. You're not going to stop the Catalans mm. from wanting their own state. In fact, in some mm. ways, you're exacerbating the issue. This kind of denial and repression of self-determination across the world is not a sensible strategy because it only ferments further turmoil and upset and I would much prefer the world to get real and help um, elaborate specific principles of what is legitimate self-determination mm. and these are I think are fairly obvious that it should be done peacefully that the rights of minorities should be very very firmly respected in any new dispensation mm. um, that it should be done without the interference of outside states so for instance that would mean that uh, Somaliland self-determination would be entirely legitimate. Mm. Uh, they pursued it peacefully. It's how it's supported by the vast majority of the Somaliland people. Um, there is no interference of outside states. But the quote-unquote independence, say, of Abkhazia or South Ossetia mm. or eastern Ukraine would not be legitimate mm. because obviously it had been a function of Russian interference. Um, after the quote-unquote independence, um, or the establishment of these states, um, what makes them successful? Because a lot of these states are, you know, either very poor or um, still in, in conflict. Um, so, for you, after we, we've said what makes the establishment of states successful, what makes the functioning of states put it, putting away an anarchism here? Uh, what makes a, a state function successfully? That's a huge question. It's very difficult to mm. generalise. And of course, the tragedy of South Sudan, and to a degree Kosovo, is they haven't succeeded very well as states. Kosovo is still a very corrupt yeah. country. Um, but it's, it's been a lot more successful. It has been mm. largely peaceful. Why particularly? Um, Why? Why what? Um, had, what has made it more successful? successful? Um, South Sudan... There were very intense political rivalries before independence, mm. which were not resolved by independence, and which exploded. Um, you know, again, these are often attributed to ethnic causes between the Dinka and the Nuer, etc., etc. I'm not entirely convinced that is the case. Mm. I think, I'm afraid, it's just an, in some cases, an absolutely odious political class that is mm -hmm. where individuals have chosen to pursue mm. their own ambitions um, at the expense of a great many lives. Um, 
And of course, there were not institutions that could restrain that kind of behavior. Mm. It's easy to say you need strong institutions. Um, it takes a very long time to build up strong institutions and the normative cultural habits that sustain them. Mm. Institutions, you can't just put a plaque on a door and say we have a Ministry yeah. of Justice or an independent high court. You know, this takes a long uh, shift in behaviors and attitudes and normative rules uh, to get to that point. Kosovo had intense, intense international attention and support. Um, you know, a NATO presence uh, for a very long time after the war, mm. very, very heavy investment by the EU and others. It's a much smaller country and was already, um, it's not a rich country, but it was a lot better off than South Sudan. Mm. South Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. There was, when it became independent, I think there was one road and that was five miles long. Mm. Would you say part of the reason Kosovo has been more successful is because it's in Europe, this um, Eurocentric, perhaps, attitude of... Because I, th I, think, I think the EU perspective, mm. as they call it in Kosovo, has, has been very important. Um, the EU has made very clear that ultimate membership of the European Union, which is what many Kosovars want, mm. um, will depend on its progress in terms of protection of democracy, uh, respect for minorities and human rights, the mm. rule of law, mm. um, and that unless it meets European standards in those regards, it will not get membership. And for many Kosovars, what matters about membership is, is not only the, the benefits of membership, including transfers from richest nations, but the freedom to travel. Kosovo is a very small place, mm. and um, one of the top issues for Kosovars is that they can't travel easily, um, they can't get visas, mm. Uh, it's an enormous frustration mm. for young people, but everybody in Kosovo. So getting into the EU has been, an, I think, an enormously positive force mm. um, playing out in Kosovo. Of course, you don't have that in the case mm. of South Sudan. Mm. Thank you. Um, turning to uh, the a very present example of, um, and perhaps more in the news than, than Kosovo, unfortunately, um, of states in trouble. Let's let us turn to Syria and the Middle East in general. Um, you have briefly mentioned your work with the Syrian opposition forces. What was your experience with them, and are there any lessons for the eventual reconstruction of Syria that we could learn? God, um, mm. my experience with them is that there are you know a groups of very determined. Um, brave people who want mm. democracy in Syria mm -hmm. and this belief that the opposition has been wiped out or is not legitimate mm. and that Assad is one is a very objectionable mm. way of talking about Syria. Mm. Um, I very firmly believe that most Syrians, if not all Syrians, frankly want democracy and, mm. and the rule of law, mm. um, the continuation of dictatorship in, in, in Syria mm -hmm. will not end the war, mm -hmm. it will continue to be bloodshed. Uh, the Assad regime only controls about 55% of the country in any case. Um, you know, in all of our work in Independent Diplomat, the thing that I'm repeatedly reminded of is that victory goes to the people who keep going. Persistence mm. uh, is kind of obvious, uh, but there aren't necessarily individual factors that you can point to. You can always post facto, mm. uh, look back and say, oh, is that, that and that, that enabled this situation to come about. Mm -hmm. But the thing for opposition movements, for pro-democracy movements, civil rights movements, mm -hmm. the lesson over and over again is that you will only succeed if you keep going. I mean, it's, it's kind of banal, but it's a lesson worth mm -hmm. uh, repeating. 
Um, sorry, what was your second question? Uh, which was um, was actually linked to what, what you just mm -hmm. said. Um, mm -hmm. You said keep going. How long is it keep? How, how long is it going to go for? It's been what uh, seven years now. Seven years now. Uh, tragically, um, I don't know. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's not going to stop anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to say. Uh, personally, I think it ending will require much greater international attention than it's had, particularly mm -hmm. from the Americans. Um, the Americans are basically the only country with the capability of corralling all of the external mm -hmm. actors and forcing some of the external actors to um, force their own proxies to the table. The mm -hmm. Assad regime has basically refused to negotiate at the UN through the so-called Geneva mm -hmm. process from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And Russia could make them negotiate, and it won't. I mean, it says that it tries to persuade them and Assad refuses. This mm. is just nonsense. I mean, the Assad regime relies on Russian and Iranian military support for its survival. Uh, so the Russians have enormous leverage there. And for whatever reason, Putin has not made that choice. Um, and I think pressure ought to be put on Putin mm. uh, to make him make that choice. Um, because, of course, the wider ramifications of the Syria war both in terms of regional conflict, but also in terms of consequences outside of, you know, refugee flows, for instance, have been enormous. Um, and it is horrific to see half a million people, 600,000 mm. people now have been killed, uh, half the population displaced. I mean, it's an epic, epic mm. disaster that we have to address. Can you see, I mean, it's obviously, very, I appreciate it, it's very difficult to... Um, to say with any surety, but looking into a crystal ball of sorts, um, can you see any eventual outcome? What would the makeup be? Will there be, um, will Assad stay on? Will Syria be, what, 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 what will it, can you see any eventual I mean, I, There are many possibilities, obviously. Mm. I mean, one is that the regime just, just staggers on mm. with external- The Assad regime. Yeah, with external military support, um, continual, you know, vast scale of repression mm. uh, the Kurds maintain control of the northeast mm. um, you know you can see a rough uh, sort of geographic dispensation mm. emerging even now but that's not stable mm. um, what will bring stability is the Assad regime agreeing to transition to democracy um, and that is what's elaborated in the so called Geneva communique mm -hmm. which every country in the world has accepted as the way forward mm. um, and Theoretically, at least, that will lead to a constitutional process, elections, and I hope a highly devolved form of government because mm. I cannot see centralised government working in Syria because it will just encourage mm. the contest of different groups for power mm. and lead to unfair distribution of mm. the, the fruits of power, money, resources, etc., towards the benefit, you know, the favourites of that group, you know, setting up a perpetual mechanism for mm. instability. Uh, these countries, uh, Iraq is similar, need to be um, confederal, mm. um, need to be um, where power needs to be devolved locally and regionally as much as feasibly mm. possible. Um, devolved in what way in terms of to whom? Uh, uh, to local entities, to mm. towns, regions, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, this is, mm. fits in with... So geographically border. rather than ethnic or um, sectarian? It would be impossible to divide um, Syria ethnically or sectarian ways. I mean, Westerners love to create little maps and show this is where the Alawites are and this yeah. is where the Kurds are. But, 
yes, I mean, there are, there are dominant populations mm. in certain areas, but mm-hmm. no, there is no homogeneous area mm. of Syria. Mm. Uh, the cities, you know, for instance, are highly heterogeneous, but even the countryside, um, you know, the smaller towns are mixed populations uh, between Shia and Sunni Alawite and mm. Sunni, Sunni Kurdish and Arab, etc., mm. etc. Et Not only them, there are other groups. You know, it's, it's a smorgasbord. Mm. And the best way to encourage cooperation, I think, is to devolve responsibility for decision-making to the lowest level possible. Can you see a state of Kurdistan emerging? Uh, well, there is a kind of de facto state in Rojava, the northeast, mm. where Kurdish authorities um, self-govern. Mm. Uh, it's a multi-ethnic state, mm-hmm. but it's not an exclusively Kurdish state. Um, but it isn't an independent Kurdistan, and there is no intention there to declare an independent Kurdistan. Um, of course, there was that att- attempt in Iraq, in Iraq uh, with the Kurdistan regional government under uh, Masoud Barzani, mm. um, and that attempt failed. Mm. Um, he has obviously indicated that he wants an independent Kurdistan. There is no chance of a collective Kurdistan independence in the four, area, four countries where Kurds live, mm. which is Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, um, because of the lack of unity between yeah. the Kurdish uh, uh, parties in those mm-hmm. places, uh, there won't be an independent Kurdistan in, in Syria, uh, despite the, the you know the allegations from the Turks and others that that is what they intend. Mm. And um, turning now to one of the major players in the Middle Eastern conflict, um, the USA, we have seen recently under. Um, under Donald Trump, what some have termed an abdication of in their international responsibilities. This is obviously quite a, a loaded term. Do you see, what would you see as the United States role changing under Trump as it radically you know, withdraws from accords and shifts its attention inwards? I'm not. I'm not sure it's quite that straightforward. I mean, uh, I'm generalising here. The Trump administration, um, of course, has a very different approach to international mm-hmm. relations from its its predecessor. It doesn't believe in multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Doesn't believe in the UN. Although interestingly, it, it has engaged at the UN Security Council in quite a substantive way, and mm-hmm. it, it uses the UN Security Council to further its own ends. Mm-hmm. It hasn't just ignored it. Um, Nikki Haley has been quite an interesting Amer- American ambassador there. Um, so that's one feature of it, and of course, withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, withdrawal now from the Iran deal, indicates this rejection of multilateralism, mm. the scepticism of it. Um, it's a much more unilateral government, mm-hmm. um, and with John Bolton in the National Security Council, I think you won't see necessarily American disengagement. It's not an isolationist administration necessarily. Um, in certain areas, yes, they have withdrawn attention, Syria being the, the big one. Mm. American diplomacy has really, at least in recent months, really mm. given up on Syria. That mm. may change mm. um, with the outbreak of Syrian Israeli violence, um, the chemical weapons attack. I mean, these things are very, very volatile, of mm. course, but I think it's hard to claim that the Trump administration has withdrawn from international engagement when you look at what they're doing in Korea, for instance, yes. and North Korea. I mean, you, one may or may not agree with their approach mm. there, but it's not, you can't characterize it as, as withdrawal and isolationism. Mm. Um, with regard to the Iran deal, obviously been in the news recently, um, how, will you, how will that affect the geopolitics of the Middle East and the stability of the Iran, current Rouhani um, administration and generally of, of um, Iran and its 
its uh, actions in the Middle East, if at all? Uh, good question. I mean, I, I won't make any prediction about the domestic effects of it. I mean, there's this rather simplistic thesis that um, putting pressure on Iran only strengthens the hardliners, quote-unquote. I don't think things like that. Well, because this is a kind of cliche, the way people talk about Iran. Um, mm. I think the politics of Iran, like the politics of everywhere, are usually much more complicated mm. than these very simplistic caricatures mm -hmm. that we in the West tend to place on them. Um, I don't think it's self-evident that the end of the Iran deal, uh, the JCPOA, mm. means that there would be domestic political consequences. I'm not sure that that's clear, that that would be the case. In terms of international consequences, obviously, you're going to see a more rebarbative Iran. Mm. Um, you're going to see back on the table the question of Israeli military action mm. to contain um, Iran's nuclear program, which they have long threatened, and the Iran deal was the thing that basically uh, silenced that. Mm. Uh, that discussion, at least temporarily, so that's going to come back on the table as an issue. We've we've got proxy confrontation in Syria anyway. That's mm. just happened last night. Um, so you know it's hardly a stabilizing thing. On the other hand, Iran is already actively engaged in Syria, mm. in destabilizing Syria, and supporting the Assad regime. Um, it is not a particularly positive actor elsewhere. Mm. Um, it supports Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I'm no Trump supporter and no fan of Trump's foreign mm -hmm. policy, but it, it's hard to argue that the JCPOA has, you know, created peace and love and stability yeah. in, a, in the Middle East. Um, what it did was, it seems, um, put down limits on Iran's nuclear mm. program and lifted sanctions and possibly there, thus opened the door to much greater economic development in Iran, which could have positive political benefits. Um, but interestingly, the inspection regimes of the uh, deal were not very strong. Mm. Um, I would not put my hand on my heart and say it guaranteed that there would be no nuclear program. Mm. Um, it's not impossible to construct secret nuclear pro programs. The Obama people and their allies said, this, you know, this, this deal will prevent um, a nuclear Iran, they may be right, um, mm. but I felt as somebody who's dealt with weapons inspections in the past that there were quite big holes in the mm. agreement in that regard. Mm. Do you think it will collapse then with the withdrawal of the USA? I think the, deal. the, US, the USA will try to get quote-unquote a better deal um, and it's possible that they will uh, because their leverage is great mm. and the Europeans want a deal or the other P5 Mm -hmm. And the Germans want a deal. Uh, they do not, you know, there's now enormous economic stakes at play. Mm -hmm. um, big aircraft companies, oil companies, Total, Airbus have now mm -hmm. major investments to protect. There's going to be huge pressures to sustain the deal in some way. Um, and what the Trump administration may now try to do is to play hardball and demand much, much stricter conditions on a deal mm. if they're going to, you know, a, an amended revised deal. I mean, they mm. have said, I think they want to work, that they want to work for a better Iran deal in their terms. Can there be one? One that lasts uh, longer, maybe with uh, not the sunset clauses? And... There's no question that there could be tighter restrictions mm -hmm. on, the, on the nuclear program. Mm. No question. Um, in terms of when it expires, in terms mm -hmm. of the inspection regime, mm. um, you know, uh, Trump is quite right to say that uh, the JCPOA has these uh, gaps in it 
for instance, um, the IEA is not allowed to inspect military sites. Mm. Um, well, you know, if you're trying to build a nuclear bomb, you might want to build it on a military site, particularly if those are the places mm. that are not going to get it inspected. Mm. And John Bolton, who I think will become a major driver of American foreign policy, he knows all of this. Mm. I mean, I think he, he knows a lot about weapons inspections. I think this may be the approach and the Europeans will will desperately try to reconstruct the mm. deal. The, the big question, of course, is whether the Iranians would then sign up to it. Um, mm. And um, that is really open to doubt. Mm. Um, a f- uh, f- final broad question um, on, as you mentioned, generalizations. Here's a general one. Um, do you have... How do you view the development in the next five, ten years of diplomacy in general? Um, do you think diminishing role of the UN? Um, how, what would you think? Is, is there any hope? Is there any hope in general for the world? Um, <laughs> ah, uh, for, for, more for um, international relations. But you see, you and I think start from different places. I mean, I, I don't see international relations mm. as, as being... Uh, a place you know dominated by states and at places like the UN, as you say. I'm That's why I say, where do you think see it going? I, I mean, I think it, it's of its own accord. Mm. It is going to become much more heterogeneous, mm-hmm. much more eclectic. Diplomacy, mm. you know, should have a much broader definition. Mm. Um, you know, it tends to be classically defined as interactions between states, and of course, that that activity will remain. Mm. That's not going to change, and there are still many things that states need to talk to each other about. And I see none of them saying that the UN should not exist. Um, they still like the UN to talk mm. to each other. Not a single member state, even the Russians, you know, um, has said the UN Security Council should not be the uh, leading authority on peace and security. And that seems remarkable to me, 70 mm. years after it's established, that you know every member state still reaffirms its, mm. its importance. Its effectiveness is another matter. Um, you know, particularly in the realm of conflict, I think it is de- decreasingly effective mm. um, uh, because of the reasons I've expressed. Yeah. You know, it's dominated by uh, self-interested countries, many yeah. of whom are actually actively engaged in war. Um, it is not addressing the changing nature of conflict, which mm-hmm. is becoming much more heterogeneous mm. and involving non-states rather than states, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, but of course the UN is not only the Security Council, I tend to talk about it a lot because I work there and I, I deal with it a lot, but it, the UN is also things like climate agreements, UN, uh, development, mm. the millennial, the sustainable, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, again where you've got uh, you know absolutely rock solid commitment from 193 countries to the Sustainable Development Goals, that's not an unimportant thing. Um, that is the framework for mm-hmm. how the world is approaching development. Nobody repudiates that. And that's pretty extraordinary. As for climate, the other big danger, um, you know, a mixed story. Um, but only America is talking about mm. leaving Paris. They haven't actually done it yet. Uh, Paris remains the framework which every other member state treats as the framework to deal with climate. It's not enough but it should be ratcheted up to tighter targets. Mm, mm. So, I mean, the UN will obviously still remain a place where a lot of these issues are addressed. What I would say is it's obviously not sufficient. Yeah. And the idea that we can just look to these top-down bodies to fix these problems is, is fantastically naive. Thank you. And two somewhat lighter, um, more uh, final questions. Firstly, three books that have most influenced you 
professionally and that we would rec- recommend to our audience listening, not necessarily your favourite books, but three books that you think would be sort of must-reads for IR or sort of foreign policy enthusiasts? Wow. Uh, it's a good question because I'm not really a fan of IR books. I don't really read these big, thick Maybe when you're younger, Diplomacy or... by Henry Kissinger and those kind of books. Um, I read literature, to be mm-hmm. honest, and poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what were the most important ones? Yeah. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace, um, an anarchist text, uh, because actually he points to the the fact that states are, and great leaders, whilst mm. um, celebrated by history, often have no idea how events really emerge and mm. take place. Um, and I think that's true. And I, I think uh, War and Peace is a great way of telling that story. Um, I think uh, the poetry, uh, the retelling of the Iliad, mm. um, called War Music, uh, by... Uh, I'm exhausted, so I'm going to forget his name. <laughs> but the that author that made a big difference for me. Um, books of philosophy, political philosophy, have been immensely important. Isaiah Berlin, Ludwig Wittgenstein, this extraordinary generation of Central European mm. Jews mm. Um, uh, um, who Popper Popper has made a huge difference to me as well. So rather than sort of text about international relations, which I think is actually spuriously separated as the discourse in academia Mm. and indeed in the way we talk about it, because actually it's about everything. Um, That's why um, I like it. Yeah. uh, Though, unfortunately, it's encouraged a kind of bogus theoreticizing about IR, Mm. you know, these kind of ludicrous notions of realism, neorealism, all that nonsense, which are particularly dominant in the American Academy. Um, which I think are very, very confusing. Mm. I, I think one has to maintain a very eclectic mm. approach to this. Um, you know, there are many theories that help explain the world. Mm. The, the, I think, actually, now you come to mention it, the one that I've... Uh, the book, or rather the thing that really helped me frame the world, it's not sufficient, it's only one of many theories that are relevant, but that is complexity theory. And... Um, I did a course in complexity theory, this cheesy thing called The Great Courses. You can get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in those days, I mm-hmm. got it on DVD. I happened to see the advert on pay-per-view TV in New York. And that changed the way I thought about the world. Mm-hmm. So there you go. The Great Courses on Complexity. It's a really, really interesting course. It's not applied to an mm-hmm. IR. He doesn't talk about mm-hmm. international relations at all. Mm-hmm. But he talks about complex systems, okay. which is what we're living in. I'll, I'll certainly give that a look. Thank you. And um, <laughs> you sound very sceptical. No, no. <laughs> and anything new is. <laughs> um, and one final question: Any advice to Christopher Logue? Christopher Logue, the author of War Music. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah. So um, give you poetry, literature, yeah. and science. I can do two of them. <laughs> um, um, finally, yes. Any general advice for our audience listening? on most of them want to go into, quote-unquote, international relations. Obviously, um, you must, you have a wealth of experience. Any advice, as cynical or as encouraging as you like? I'm not a cynic. I'm a big believer in you guys and young people who are interested in the world. You've got the future and you've got far more power mm. than I will ever have. Um, what I would say, with emphasis, is you don't do international relations sitting at desks in okay. the UK or mm. the US you do it by getting out there. The biggest experiences that changed my life were all overseas. In Kosovo, in Zimbabwe, where I was a teacher, 
uh, in New York when I worked at the UN, you have to get out there. Mm. You know, actually be do international relations in your own life mm. and not just think about it as a separated thing between countries mm. because that is what matters and it's diverse and exciting mm. and a great, a great area to be in. Carlos, thank you very much for that fascinating interview. Um, to all our listeners, thank you for listening and please be sure to check out the Beacon podcasts on the Oxford International Relations Society website. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much, Archie. Thanks for having me.